Hello, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me here live on Weagle 91.1 FM at 8 a.m. on Thursdays or whatever time it is where you're listening. This week, Victoria and I uh, wanted to take a moment to have a conversation about a group uh, as a group about our experience with history and uncovering untold story. So instead of inviting a history professional into the Weagle studio today, we're joined by Colby Axelberg. For this season, Colby has been hard at work at helping us put together our show and form the best questions to ask our numerous guests. Like Sophia and Victoria, Col- Colby is a student at Auburn and a sophomore majoring in history. Thank you so much for coming on, Colby. Ooh, welcome Thank on. you, guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're going to have to tell me whether or not I'm too loud for the microphone. Uh, I'm used to public speaking without a microphone, so if I peek the mic a couple of times, uh, I'm saying sorry now, and you're not going to get an apology later. But (laughs) good to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for all the work that you've been doing uh, both this season and last season to help us put together all the questions that we ask our guests. Yeah, of course. Uh, Just so our listeners know, if you heard a question you really liked over the past two seasons, that was uh, definitely me, or you could throw a dart at a board, and it'd probably have about an even chance of being all of us. So <laughs> Sophia and Victoria do a lot of the heavy lifting, and I get to do the fun part. So <laughs> thank you guys for all your work. Of course. Yeah. Well, a great team effort and a fun process to all get to be a part of, for sure. Amen. Well yeah. said. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, so to get this morning's conversation started, we thought we would begin with a little discussion about the untold stories we have have had the opportunity to uncover as students of history. So, Colby, what's been an untold story that you've uncovered in one of your classes? Yeah, so there are a couple I could probably talk about. Uh, This is the first semester that I actually have any history courses, so that's a (laughs) fun perk, but I'm definitely still getting there even though it's week three. So right now I'm in science and technology law with Dr. Folick, and that class has really opened my eyes to like the kind of inner workings of science. Like we don't talk about the elements of science as if they're something that people make, but science really is a social phenomenon because you have to agree on things, and in order to agree on things you have to kind of mesh everyone's interests together. you got to set standards for everyone. And so we've been talking a lot about expert witnesses, how testimony gets accepted. And so seeing all of that has really, I guess it's never been something that I've ever thought about before when it comes to history. But it's like there is so much tradition that goes into the law that is intersecting with all these new developments in science. And so... One of the cases we're talking about is the Wells Harbor case. Uh, And in this case, I'm going to bridge the details because I could go way into it. But uh, they're trying to decide, okay, did these people ruin our harbor or did something else ruin the harbor? Uh, And so one of the parties brings forward like 
a bunch of civil engineers who are all like, hey, we did practical measurements, and it's definitely this one guy ruining it. Mm -hmm. And the one guy responds, well, hey, I have these really respected civil engineers who are also Newtonian philosophers, ah. and they've, <laughs> they've applied a bunch of theories to this, mm -hmm. and they say that it's not my fault. Oh, interesting. And so the judge... The judge in the case, the initial judge, decides, well, we trust the bunch of civil engineers more, so we're going to go with them. Ah. But it goes to the appeals court of the time, uh, and I don't remember the judge's name. He's a famous judge, but he basically says, it's crazy to me that in a matter of science that not all scientists can speak on it. Oh, yeah. And so in doing so, he kind of sets up the system of, hey, both parties can bring forward expert witnesses to testify in contrast, oh. even if they're from two different scientific fields, but one science isn't necessarily higher than another oh, That's science. interesting. And a cool conclusion to like come to that scientists don't necessarily always agree on science, so kind of counters that idea that it's a, an objective fact all the time. Right, mm -hmm. right. It's like a positivist perspective where we assume science, like capital S science, mm -hmm. it's always going to be right. It's always going to produce factual truth. Right. But the more you study it, and this is something Dr. Frolic talks about, is you discover that it's made up of a bunch of different fields who all have different views, different goals, and oftentimes will come into conflict over the methods that you use to find stuff out. Ah, interesting. Mm. Huh. That's really cool. So yeah, highly recommend, if you need a liberal arts elective class, uh -huh. Science, Technology, and the Law, Dr. Froelich, History 3540. Nice, a good plug. And you can also <laughs> listen to our episode, if you haven't, where he came on. It was a really great episode. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. I had him last fall for uh, the history of food and food and power, so that was very interesting, and got to have a conversation with him connecting with that. So be sure to listen back if you're here on the podcast. Definitely. And uh, I will admit that is the inspo for actually taking that class Ooh. was listening to him on the radio show. Yeah. So you guys are doing so. We're influencers. I was Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Don't call yourself that, Sophia. Don't let your head get too big. Oh, no. I'm influencing no. the public. <laughs> radio host. Yeah. All right. Did you, did you anticipate learning a more holistic story of history when you first entered college? Hmm. I, I think so. I think that I came in with like a good general overview of history. But when I majored in it, I was like, okay, I'm eventually going to find out that a bunch of stuff I ended up thinking was wrong. Uh, I will say that I was surprised by the amount of stuff that you can take a history course in. Like, yeah. this year, I'm not really taking, like, any... I, I think of history as, like, an overarching subject, right? Right, you, right. you understand what I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, yeah, I know what you yeah. mean. Where it's like, oh, you talk about the world in general or talk about big groups of people. Mm -hmm. But, like, this year, I'm taking fascism with Professor Eden McLean, yeah. and then I'm also taking science, technology, and law. Mm -hmm. And those aren't really, like history courses of a whole people or a culture. Right. They're just like history of almost a particular field. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, I think that I could agree with you for sure that it's just really cool how many different ways you can approach history and how many different specializations there are as well within that and that it's not necessarily just one 
huge narrative, but you can chunk it up into little little stories too. Right, right. Uh, I don't I don't know if that's been the same experience for y'all. Has that been the same experience for y'all? Yeah, or? I think that the history department does a good job of offering like a lot of really interesting history courses in a lot of different areas Mm -hmm. and like but it's I think it's still ultimately small enough that in a way it kind of forces you to take things that are outside of your comfort zone Mm -hmm. like I'm in the middle of survey of Middle Eastern history one so it's gonna it's like medieval um history of the Middle East and that's definitely something that's like way out of my comfort zone Mm -hmm. and something that I didn't really anticipate I would take in college but ultimately I still think it's very relevant because you're talking about like the very early days of Islam and sort of learning more about the Muslim religion and Muslim culture is really really been interesting and still very relevant like not necessarily relevant to what I want to do because I'm more interested in more modern history but I can still sort of see the influence that it's having on the world and like international conflicts and I still think that it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And just I think that it was super cool when I was like first looking through the all the courses that the history department offers, just like Colby was saying, the variety and then like Sophia's saying, being able to, you know, step outside of your comfort zone too and it's still like a topic that you're interested in or like a practice that you're interested in as history, but you're taking it from a different angle and that's something super special about the major, I feel like, that you can take it in so many different directions and like unlike some of those other majors where you have to follow a regimented schedule of this, 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 you could pull like five history majors from Auburn and all of them would have a different experience because they have a different collection of classes. Right. And a lot of people are like, what's your special, what's your specialty? Like Mm -hmm. what period do you Mm -hmm. like the most? I'm like, I have a period of time that I like the most, but I don't, I don't study that period of time. Right. Yeah. Or I want to want to keep learning. I want to know all of it so that then I can have a more like holistic thing instead of just like specializing in one area at this point, at least. (laughs) Right. Sophia, uh, when you took that class, like, do you classify that as uh, an untold story of history? Uh, Or do you think that it's just something where people haven't really bothered to look? Talking about like survey of Middle Eastern history? Yeah. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's untold. I think, like, most people, I think a lot of people take world religion classes in, like, high school or at some point in their, in their lives, and I, but I think a lot of it is, like, uh, I, but I would say, like, I'm trying to find a way to phrase this, uh, (laughs) like, minimally covered. Yeah, and it's also, like, why – I think it's going back to that and expanding on that idea and also, like, ultimately, like, I think going – I think a lot of people, at least for me, when I took World Religions in high school, we sort of talked about, like, the early days and the first few Caius, chi- and then it was it. And, mm-hmm. like, so now when I'm in this class and, like, we're going all the way up to, like, I think the start of the Ottoman Empire, I want to say. And it's, like, that's something that, like, I know very little about. And so I'm hoping that, like, some that, – that, I think it's definitely, like, a blind spot in my history. And I'm hoping that as a whole that can kind of go over. So, like, yes and no. And also I'm reading – I'm reading a lot of, like, prime primary sources from the period, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that I've not really encountered before. And so, in a way, like, that is an untold story of, like, diving a lot deeper into those and hearing, like, 
those sort of stories from like as about as primary of a source we can get from the time right yeah yeah and that's a good question too because i was thinking about that when i was like trying to figure out what conversations i wanted to have uh this week or that we were gonna all be a part of and thinking like from a student perspective untold stories are maybe a little different than what like professionals of history would understand because where our like scope is still limited so like what's maybe an untold story to us could be something that like the general history professional population is pretty comfortable with so mm -hmm. like we have a unique experience where we're constantly uncovering untold stories and it's uh maybe maybe that brings a little bit more excitement to the student perspective and then maybe helps you appreciate once you become a professional that like excitement of finding something that doesn't have a lot of um coverage yet if right. that makes sense yeah, yeah that makes sense and i think that goes off of like what we're talking about with dr gaddis and dr Iver a lot mm -hmm. this first on our first episode of like who is like who who thinks that story is untold right. who has not yeah. heard this story and it really comes down to like your audience and like i think specifically with middle eastern history that's something that like a southern american college campus probably isn't very familiar with but right, something yeah. like u.s history is something that you can ask just about every person on this campus and they're going to give you pr a correct answer for those like very obvious questions but that might right. not be something that someone around the world would understand and know yeah yeah absolutely and then within those known stories to us there are still layers that we're not not as comfortable with or perspectives that haven't gotten as much of a voice yet in like the general narrative i guess right and i like that description you gave of like minimally covered mm -hmm. because it, for all my AP world history <laughs> yeah. class takers out there, like you start history. off going really in depth to African and Asian history, uh, especially in that like middle, like 600 AD, kind of up to 1100 AD period. Mm -hmm. And you get this really rich depth of coverage that, especially when I took that course, I was like, I don't know about any of this. Right. Like, this is all new to me. Uh, but then it just kind of moves on from that, and it ends up being primarily focused on U.S. history and European history. Mm. And it's like, that's great. You know, they had to do what they had to do. Uh, and it still retains some of the Asian elements, but it, it definitely feels like at the end of the day, it ends up being minimally covered. And it's like, well there isn't there more like did these people just stop existing until <laughs> colonialism started like what's right. the deal here right yeah. yeah 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 i think regardless like something i'm trying to do as i continue with my history major is like trying to i'm trying to take things that are very in like in my subject area and i hope to keep working on like in grad school and in my career so more like space race modern history women's history queer history things like that but also taking things that i don't know as much about and are outside of that specialty so i'm not just getting like the same thing over and over again but also mm -hmm. expanding my worldview because i don't i don't want to just be told the same thing over and over again and i i also think that like it gives me the opportunity to try out other fields of history even if i never end up pursuing them intellectually or never even like going out on my own and reading stuff about them personally I still think it's worth exploring new perspectives and I'm grateful for the history department for trying to make it to cater to everyone in their own interests yeah absolutely and what better time to keep learning and expanding your horizons than in college when that's that's your primary focus is to learn <laughs> right
Yeah, so we're going to take our first ad break, but we'll see you right after the break. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. If you're just joining us, we're here with our researcher, Colby, and we're talking about untold stories that we've come across in our own studies of history, particularly in our classes, but also we're all history nerds, so we're doing it outside of class too. So without further ado, take it away, Colby. Yeah, so we're going to divide up by person. Everyone's got a little bit to talk about. Uh, Before I go into my thing, I would like to tell the untold story of how Sophia just shot uh, a bottle into the trash can right by the door, and it was perfect. Like, that was a perfect shot. Didn't have to bank it. It was just, like, magnificent. Um, But I'm (laughs) going to be talking. My elementary school basketball skills are paying off. I I see it. Sophia's taller than me, so she could absolutely outball me. Uh, But I'm going to be talking about the untold stories in medical drug and device regulation. Uh, And you may be wondering, like, you are a history student, Colby. Why do you know anything about drug regulation? You haven't even taken a drug regulation class. Uh, I... If you don't know me, I did debate for four years in high school, and my senior year... Or just can't year, tell because of his voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I have the debater voice. It's it's there. Uh, but we did uh, drug regulation as a major topic, and so I want to stress that I'm not an expert. That said, I did kind of immerse myself in this whole subject, but I wanted to talk about this because I felt like it really related well to the whole untold stories theme uh, and also to history in general because you may be wondering, like, how does history relate? Uh, and so I have a few incidents, historical incidents, that we're going to talk about. We may not get through all of them because we're a little bit pressed for time, but we're going to do our best. Uh, and so we're going to start kind of around the inception of the FDA. And as I go, you'll probably see how untold stories relate and how history is so important. But just be asking yourself, how does history relate to all of this? So first stop, it's going to get real dark in here, okay? We're going to start with the sulfonilamide. I think it's sulfonilamide disaster uh, in 1937. So during ni- uh, September and October 1937, sulfonilamide was responsible for the deaths of more than 100 people in 15 states. Uh, and it was specifically an elixir form of it. The solid form was mostly safe for people, uh, but they came up with a new liquid form. Uh, and while they tested it to make sure that it actually smelled good, they didn't test it for whether it was safe. Oh, uh-oh. Uh, and so it was actually toxic. And because there were no regulations revolving around safety at the time, it reached the market. And this kind of gives you the context for how Americans think about regulation. If you understand American history, you'll understand that Americans are very laissez-faire with their regulation until they have to be. (laughs) Right. Uh, And so they gave people a lot of freedom in the drug development process. But that also meant that, like, you were bound to mess up. And the thought process was, if you messed up, it would be bad for business. Mm. Uh, and so just don't mess up. (laughs) Unfortunately, I think the hundred other people would have liked them to have tested it ahead of time and looked for toxicity. Uh, But they decided after this, hey, we need to give the FDA a little bit more control over everything. Uh, So that's kind of when we started getting pre-approval tests for safety. So that kind of sets everything up. Uh, 
And then you have the beginnings of basic ethical codes that are, again, prompted by history, prompted by stories of history. The two major ones are the Nuremberg Code, uh, responding to a lot of the terrible experimentation during World War II done on prisoners of war, done on minorities in places like Germany. Uh, and the Nuremberg Code established what we think of as commonplace in medical regulation, so informed consent. If you've ever been asked about that, you can thank this code for that. Uh, and also a level of risk-reward evaluations uh, because Nazi scientists produced really comprehensive studies of the human body, uh, like on hypothermia, but they did that by having people freeze to death. Oh. Uh, and so the biggest step that the Nuremberg Code took, I would argue, is that it prevented doctors from using data that was gained through unethical means. Mm -hmm. So if you're wondering why doctors don't ever do that anymore, uh, there are some who attempt it, but by and large, if you try to break that code, your medical research won't get accepted. Right. So again, we see like an intersection of history with medical regulation where yeah. it sets up what we experience today. Oh, yeah. Um, and then the, the Belmont Report is the next step, another kind of basic ethical document um, that originated from the Tuskegee syphilis study, right. the tragedy that that was, where uh, if you don't know, black men were intentionally injected with syphilis, were left completely untreated, essentially so that the doctors could just see what would happen. Mm. Uh, so not only was that a breach of existing ethics, uh, but the Belmont Report established some major rules that are basically like the guidelines that we now see in institutional review boards. So these are things like respect for persons, uh, what's called beneficent, so max benefit for patients, minimum risk, and then justice, where you're supposed to get a fair distribution of risk amongst both the patients who are receiving it and the ones who might stand to benefit from their sacrifices. Mm. So Belmont kind of lays out all of the basic principles that we now see today and builds on the Nuremberg Code. So up to this point, we've kind of seen like history interacting to create m medical regulation. And now we're gonna see how the history of medical regulation results in what we have today. Ah, interesting. So in 1962, we have the thalidomide disaster. Uh, and if you don't know what thalidomide is, uh, it's a really landmark case in medical safety. It was originally designed as a sleeping pill, uh, but in Germany, they started marketing it as a cure for morning sickness in pregnant women. Uh. And so they didn't really test it to see if it would be like a problem because they had already tested it and they knew it was safe for sleeping pills, but they didn't test it in pregnant women. Ah. Uh, <laughs> but before we get to like the aftermath, we see where history becomes a big deal because because of all of these tragedies that have been occurring in the United States, they've slowly been drifting towards a more pre-market approval system uh -huh. where they review it for safety first. Right. And alongside the safety requirements born out of sulfalidomide, the FDA also starts rejecting drugs because they don't have proof of efficacy that they actually work. And so... 
the FDA rejects thalidomide because they haven't proven that it actually works for morning sickness. Mm. And that's a huge deal because if they had tested it for morning sickness, they would have found these birth defects. Oh, wow. And so the FDA blocked the use of thalidomide. Dr. Francis Kelsey delivered the rejection, and that turned out to be a huge win for the United States uh, because over 10,000 children worldwide were born with pretty crippling birth defects because of thalidomide. Uh, the tragedy, even though it didn't happen in the United States, still provoked what are called the Kefauver-Harris drug amendments, which required manufacturers to prove efficacy. Mm. So now instead of being just kind of a fast and loose rule, they actually instituted this as a requirement. Huh. So if you think about how the normal drug process goes, this is pretty close. You have to test for safety first, and once you've proven that it's safe, then you start monitoring separately for effectiveness. Mm. So in this case, the untold stories of medical regulation kind of tying it all together are the victims who never ended up being in the United States. Ah, uh, yeah. Thanks to the FDA, thanks to Dr. Francis Kelsey, uh, we don't have to tell the story of thousands of children in the United States today who were born with those birth defects. Right. Uh, and all of these historical incidents now create the system that we have in place. Uh, and we'll go into a little bit more probably after the break talking about pre-market approval and post-market approval. But uh, on y'all's end, like, do y'all have any thoughts about all of that? Yeah, I was going to say, like, another thing that I was thinking about as you were talking is, like, how what we know of gynecology was because of how the father of gynecology had experimented on black women. Yeah. Um, and, like, we've made progress and ultimately, like, I, I benefit off of that progress, but mm -hmm. at what cost? And ultimately, a lot of, like, I think not just him, but as a whole, like, that sort of experimentation leads to today in the medical community, a misunderstanding amongst medical students and medical professionals about how much more pain that black patients can take. And ultimately, like, a lot of uh, the maternal death rate for black women is so much higher as a result. Um, and I think just like a lack of general care. So I think like as a whole, something to keep in mind as we keep talking about this is like this, they, they definitely continue to have consequences on the present. And when we talk about like studying history, that continues to be relevant. But I also think like when we, we talk about studies like these or like lack thereof, um, it's also worth mentioning like who isn't considered in the study, mm -hmm. particularly like women. Um, I think it's a a fairly well-known fact now that women or like I think a lot of people are talking about it more now that women are more likely to die in car crashes because they don't test with dummies that are that have larger chest oh, so the yeah. seatbelt doesn't fit us properly mm. um and so like also as a whole like we talk about like equality for men and women and I think you kind of have to be careful for I don't know that much about medical testing but this is my very basic opinion that like you still have to continue to test drugs differently for men and women because of women's menstrual cycles because they are ultimately going to affect how the drug is going to, um, how effective it's going to be in a lot of cases because of the rise in uh, different hormones that are going on throughout women's menstrual cycles. And in not doing so, you're putting women at a, a bigger risk. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. 
And and we'll definitely talk a little bit more about that when we go into regulatory systems. But yeah, that's especially worth emphasizing is a lot of medical knowledge came out of just kind of saying you, the patients we're testing on don't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the time it worked out great for the patients. Uh, the polio vaccine, they just kind of said, heck it, we ball. Uh, yeah. And it turned out to be a life-saving drug. But on the same end of things, you look at gynecology, and yeah, a lot of that came out of just a complete disrespect for black women. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we're going to go to another break, but we'll see you right after. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. If you're just joining us, we're joined by Colby, one of our researchers Um, And we're talking about medical history. Colby, would you like to take it away? Yeah. So if you were sick of listening to me talk, uh, congratulations. This section is a little bit bit less of me talking, a little bit more discussion. So I kind of gave us in the last segment a rundown on drug regulation history. Uh, Now that you know all of that, we can talk kind of about the status quo and how those are shaped by the untold stories of history. So there there are kind of two systems to it. So there's what's called pre-market approval, and then there's post-market approval, which pretty self-explanatory, I think. One checks drugs and devices before they go on the market. The other kind of checks them as they're on the market. Uh, And so to give you an idea of the problems and benefits of both, uh, we're going to talk about them. So post-market review is fighting for the untold stories that come as a result of drug delay. Uh, And so let's say that drug A works. The longer it's in testing, the more expensive it gets, and the more people go for a long time without it. So it's very much a mess around and find out philosophy that kind of evokes the sulfalidomide tragedy. But at the same time, there are a lot of prominent people who support this. Uh, Europe especially went this route when I was researching about it. Uh, But there's not an insignificant number of lives that are estimated to be lost because of this. So, for instance, in 2007, Ronald Trowbridge and Stephen Walker wrote in the Wall Street Journal, aloxetin was summarily rejected by the FDA in 2000, despite being approved in at least 29 other countries. Uh, And so in January 2002, we started to ask the FDA to allow patients access. The agency delayed approval until August, and in between, about 40,000 Americans died without ever getting the drug. Oh, wow. So there's no sort of fanfare about this. These people, like, don't get talked about at all. We're not, like, the Aloxetin tragedy. Uh, because nobody knows for sure what would have happened if we approved it. Mm-hmm. So looking at that system, do y'all, do y'all think that's, like, fair? Do you think that's the way it should be? Or just ah, kind of general thoughts? That's interesting. I feel like it's a very tough dilemma to think about because you know that they're coming from the right place of having that prioritizing of uh, making sure that everything is safe for people to use. But then as it's continued to be approved by a lot of other like countries that have similar standards to the U.S., then it's tough to see that like other people are getting that treatment while Americans aren't yet. And then obviously that costs a lot of lives. So yeah. 
Uh, ah, that's tough. <laughs> yeah. Hard to hard to take a stand on that. Was that like a the debate question? <laughs> it it more or less was honestly. Mm. Yeah, we had one that was like the World Health Organization. I don't remember the exact wording, but it was like should make a bigger effort to give vaccines to like third world countries. I don't uh, remember. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think. I don't know. <laughs> this yeah. is such a difficult question. Yeah. yeah. And, and part of, like, that's part of the reason we discussed it is right. this is such a difficult question to answer because when you look at that statistic, we don't know what percentage of those 40,000 would have survived. We don't know right. how much yeah. longer yeah, they would have lived for. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was for colorectal cancer. Ah. Uh and it's interesting because there are some people who take this line of logic very, very far. Uh, Dr. Mary J. Ruert in her book, Death by Regulation, actually claims that since the Kefauver-Harris amendments in the 60s, uh, she claims, okay, if you want to see an exercise in bad statistics, you can read this book. Oh. She claims that 300 million people died as a result of that. Wow. Which is wow. a huge, huge number to claim. But you yeah. can see the potential of saying, like, look at all the lost innovation here that comes with a post-market system. Right. Mm. Uh, but then on the other hand, we look at the pre-market review system, uh, which takes drug A and says, what if it doesn't work? If we go at it blindly based on safety in animals, then we proactively harm people. So it kind of runs counter to the whole medical ethic of do no harm. Uh, And obviously the people on the other side would contend you're doing harm by not approving it. But here you're actively causing harm. Right. Uh, And if you thought that what those other countries do in Europe typically has us beat, it's not usually clear. Uh, A report in 2018 from the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists found that in the European Union, regulators have been gathering rapidly rising numbers of injury and malfunction reports each year, but they refuse to publish the data, Mm -hmm. claiming that to do so would be to give away confidential commercial information and unnecessarily scare the public. Mm -hmm. So there have been thousands of people that have been injured in some way by these post-market systems, Mm -hmm. but their stories aren't told. At all, right, right. because companies may or may not be potentially suppressing them. Ah, that's a good point. Yeah, where the uh, stories connect to the profit margins of other people and how that like evolves with history, and you see that in lots of lots of places where there's those conflicting values on why stories are or are not told. Right, and it's also it's it's a difficult question for the doctor because you have to decide. Okay. My patient might be able to benefit from this. My dad would always draw a parallel to a Star Trek episode. (laughs) Uh, I don't remember the Star Trek episode as much as he talked about it. But you have a treatment that might work or it might accelerate their demise. Mm, And it's a really hard position for a doctor to be in because we think of them as these people who don't make people worse. That's the number one thing doctors aren't supposed to do is make patients worse. Uh, and so it really poses like some significant dilemmas to medical doctors. Yeah, yeah that's uh, true. Sophia, do you have something you want to add on to that? I was going to offer a correction. It was 
the debate topic was resolved. The member nations of the World Trade Organization ought to reduce intellectual property protections for medicines. But basically the debate went came down to COVID vaccines in other countries and how a lot of other countries aren't getting vaccines at the rate that the U.S. is. Right. And, um, and that's a that's a big thing. Uh, if we had more time, I'd love to talk about uh, evergreening and patent law. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, like that's a big question is, are these patents producing more victims or are they saving people by providing an economic incentive? Right. Uh, it's a really, really difficult question to answer. But the reason I brought this onto the show and wanted to talk about it is like the battle for regular me- medical regulation is inherently a battle of untold stories. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Uh, you have the stories that we never hear because they never happened. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that have been saved by pre market approval versus the stories that we don't get to see of people who ordinarily passed away mm-hmm. but could have been saved by right. these life-saving drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of perspectives to consider and huh, so many ways of looking at it that it's hard to hard to think of there ever being like a definitive solution to the, to right. the dilemma. <laughs> right. Uh, go ahead. I wasn't going to say anything. Oh. <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of... It's kind of a great encapsulation of history because you have all these different interests involved here and you you really can't look at any of these people and say, aside from maybe the company is saying you can't publish this data, uh, but even then they have a justification for it, mm-hmm. which is they don't want people to fear medicine and not come to them when they need help. Uh, but you really can't yeah. look at any of these parties and say, you know, you're the villain here. Right, yeah. Everybody's got their own motives. And, yeah, that's a good point, too, mm-hmm. that, like, the thing that's at stake as well is credibility and that if one situation causes a major loss in credibility, what other lives will that not end up saving if no one trusts the medical community? Right. Uh, and so much of history is learning that there isn't real like sure there are some obvious villains i think the nazis are pretty obvious villains of history uh but in general there aren't a ton of people we look at and can say definitively you're a villain right it's more a lot of different people with different goals and objectives and different ways of looking at the world that bump into conflict against each other yeah and I think that's something special that comes with as you're growing in the history fields of things that you learn more and more about how dynamic everything is and the complexities of everyone's perspectives. Right, yeah. Yeah, and, like, I think also looking back on it, like, in the modern day, like, trying not to put too much of a modern lens on things. Right. I think there is, like, some good, like, there's definitely good that can come out of that. But I think ultimately judging people based off of today's moral standards isn't always the best. I mean, there are some mm-hmm. things that are inherently wrong, but it's it's not always great to be like, well, we wouldn't do that today, so now I'm going to like villainize this person for right. right. For sure. For sure. And it, it's definitely it's definitely true when you look through the history of things like uh, Sol sulfanilamide i have so much trouble saying that but it's like 
if I were somebody in 1937, I would have assumed that if my drug was safe in a regular, like, ground form, that it'd be safe in a liquid form. And mm-hmm. I'd be like, why are you making me test this again? Right. So it, it's easy to look back and say, what a goofball. What <laughs> silly guys not testing for safety. But you look back at it and you say, I mean, what – what would I have done in that right. situation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you want to say that you do the thing that we we know on this side of things, but would you? Would right. You? And that's that's really the hardest part and something you learn as a historian. And this kind of got me into this is like you have the benefit of hindsight when you talk about these things. Right. But especially uh, the thalidomide disaster, it's like before children started being born with birth defects, people were like, it's great for morning sickness. Uh-huh. It works so well. It's like making these mothers feel better. Mm-hmm. And so with the benefit of hindsight, we're like, duh, you <laughs> should have tested to see if it would work on pregnant women. Right. But if you were Dr. Francis Kelsey, you had a bunch of people in your ear saying, why are you doing this? It's already been proven safe for one thing. Why wouldn't it be safe again? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. All right, we're going to go into our last break, but we'll see you right after. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me. If you're just joining us, we just had Colby Axelberg on, who's one of our researchers, but unfortunately, he had to head to work, so you're just stuck with Victoria and I now, (laughs) Um, but I'm sure we'll make it worth your time. So, uh, going into our last segment, we want to continue our conversation about uncovering untold stories in our own lives. So, Victoria, take it away. Yeah, sure. All right. So, I don't know. When I was thinking about this, we kind of talked about it earlier, how untold stories for the student perspective is a little different than the history professional perspective because we're still uncovering so many things. Uh, Something that's been super special is just getting to be a part of this podcast and have a chance to talk to professors and history uh, buffs, I guess you could say, they all are, uh, about their areas of specialty and how they've come across their topics and then it's just also been super neat to like have a cool conversation with them outside of the classroom in discussing their topics so like you know every professor goes into their class with a specific set of points Mm -hmm. they need to cover to get through their setup curriculum but then having a conversation style like this where there's no objective points that you have to get to can be a lot of fun as well so that's been that's been a cool way of uncovering untold stories. Sophia, do you have any like I don't know epiphany moments from the conversations we've gotten to have thus far? Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. That's not really related to my history classes at all. But I remember when like I graduated high school and I was at a friend's graduation party, and we were sitting around eating, and her grandmothers and some older women in her family were just in the kitchen with us and talking. Um, and one of them mentioned like, oh, when I was your guys' age, like I was getting married or about to get married. Um, and like, I just remember like the absolute shock right. of hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like I sit here now, like, you know, a year and a half later or so. And I'm like, I truly cannot imagine being married now. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, it's like, that's so incredibly crazy to me. And it's like, when we talk about uncovering untold stories, those are the untold stories of like, the invisible labor or just like the housewives and like the everyday people yeah who don't always make the history books but also just like really shows like the impact of how far 
we've come in terms of like women's rights over the past century right and so like when I'm sort of like focusing on like women's history and I talk about those things I do I recall that conversation because I'm like I owe so much to just be able to like I guess not be I can do whatever I want now it's not not even I don't have to be married I don't have to settle down and have a family because it's Uh not expected of me and like my worth isn't necessarily tied to having a man in my life or like it's not important of whether or not I even have a dad or a brother or or a male partner because like it's pretty recent that like women could own credit their own credit cards in their own name right, yeah only like I think 72 73 ish um or 71 early 70s um so to be able to like stand here and be like I think really shows like the importance of history of like I owe so much to the women and people of the past. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And getting those stories passed down is definitely something that's super important in helping us remember about those untold stories, too. It definitely can make connections in my life with similar things. And so maybe kind of moving from that idea into how, like, historians work with untold stories, I think it's really cool how many different facets of history or different ways of looking at the past there are like we were talking about earlier and then I was thinking too about how there's kind of like this tension between uh being able to uncover untold stories because you know that they exist or like that they're yet to be told or like that turning point and when you realize oh no one else has done something on this before and then as you're searching I always wonder like how much the source availability really like limits that conversation you can have and then it's kind of sad to think like are there some stories that like the general general public or even just a few people will never know because of those like sources not being preserved or not being written down even yeah, I'd say, like, personally, as someone fairly, like, uh, new into the history field, like, mm-hmm. I'm working on a paper for my historian's crafts, craft class Woo. on the transition of the NICA, the National Advise, Com- Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, into NASA. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, basically, it's there, I'm just kind of struggling to find towards this. <laughs> right. And I'm like, there's probably a reason why I don't know anything about this transition period because it's like, I, goodness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that paper trail, that's just interesting to think. And then that kind of makes me conscious when I was like, I don't know, I distinctly remember like riding in the car when I was like in like middle school or elementary school, something like that. And I was thinking like, man, why would I write down like what I'm experiencing right now as like, you know, a kid in Virginia, just like living here? Like who would want to know that? Like I was reading some sort of history book about some impressive person and you're like, man, it's cool that like we can know their story. No one would want to know mine at this point is <laughs> what I remember thinking. And then like going to museums or other places or just in history classes when you start to learn about like, you know, those regular people from each period and how that can be valuable too. I kind of think back and I'm like, man, I do kind of wish I wrote down back in fifth grade, seventh grade, whatever it was. I do kind of wish that I wrote down my stories or my perspectives because not only would it be interesting for me to hear like at this point in my life, but also like it could be something cool to look back on because there's like, you know, history is still being written. Things are still evolving. 
Yeah. And I also think like we're living through like some pretty big times. Like, right. The COVID, like COVID mainly. Yeah. Um, and so I think historians will probably look back at like tweets. I remember this in my <laughs> APUSH class. Uh, my APUSH professor teacher was like, uh, talking about how she's in, like, she was in like a Facebook group of other APUSH teachers, uh-huh. and she was like, if you, ha-, and basically someone posed like, if you had to write a DBQ for like present day, what uh, like stuff would you use as uh, like yeah. different primary sources for students to make that argument? Right. And she was like, these teachers are so extra. Like they have like <laughs> several pages of like every document, but like <laughs> what tweets would you use? What like news articles would you use? Right. Like. I was just like, that's so interesting is like, because like, I'm sure that, you know, 20 years from now or even further, that's going to be something that like, is going to be in the history books. And uh-huh. it's like, well, how do we already start telling this? Absolutely. Which, that makes me uncomfortable that I lived through something and it's already like <laughs> in the book. Yeah, yeah, but, totally. Yeah. I completely agree. And then I feel like as you think of history from like that frame of reference too, then it can kind of like, I don't know, maybe devillainize in a sense like how we always judge history from being told from one perspective or another but then if you're thinking about trying to build like your life into a history what perspectives you would use and how you have to make those tough decisions kind of puts it all in perspective too on how that's an issue that we we all deal with perspective and whose voices are going to be put in like the history of what we're living through right now yeah and that's a great thought to end on so with that, we're going to end today's episode. Um, thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much to Colby for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, thank you to the history department, as well as Dr. Schultz, as always. Um, and thank you to you, dear listener. We really appreciate it, and we'll see you next week. Absolutely. <laughs>